Right. Well, we continue in our rapid march through the Bible. I was surprised to find that our visitor knew knew where we were in the in our study. He looked at our website. So, <laughs> um, we've spent the bulk of our time so far doing the Old Testament. Although this looks like the New Testament is about as big, it's not nearly as big. And um, we finished two out of the four Gospels. We're starting the Gospel of Luke um, this morning. Um, on this timeline that Massey put together, this little gap here, this little white area there, that's the amount of time that all the New Testament books fit into. That's the first century A.D. And as opposed to that, you've got this huge amount of time for the Old Testament books. And we're on this magenta-colored one up here, the book of Luke. So let me start with um, a look at the outline of Luke. This, again, I got this from the Zondervan Bible. Um, and it looks very similar to the, the outline we had for Matthew and, and for Mark. In fact, what's the term typically applied for those three Gospels? Synoptic, which means they have one vision. They, they, they each have, they, and they, which is pretty much true. I mean, the. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all follow much the same outline. We'll, we'll look a little bit more at the preface, which is very unique to Luke. And then we got a couple chapters, the coming of Jesus, which would... Um, there's nothing marked to correspond with that, but um, uh, Matthew, the Matthew chapter uh, 2 would correspond somewhat. Uh, we're going to look at the preparation for His ministry today and as well as the beginning of His ministry in Galilee. The, what I've got it read here, that's what we're going to be covering uh, this morning. Now, um, when we talked about Matthew, we discussed who he was writing for and who was that? Yeah, he was writing for a Jewish audience. And, and I suggested that his picture of Jesus was a fulfillment of what in the Old Testament? Yeah, the king, um, who of course was the Messiah. I I looked at one particular book in particular that he was taking it from. Doesn't ring a bell. I don't think I spent a lot of time on it. The, the, The book of Isaiah, and specifically the first half of the book of Isaiah, um, which would be like Isaiah 7, 9, 11, which would be the prophecies that would be most familiar. The reason I picked those is that those are the ones that show that the coming Messiah was going to be king. And, and Matthew really emphasizes Jesus as the king. And he came to establish his kingdom. Mark, on the other hand, I suggested he took his picture of Jesus from where? Helen? Second half of Isaiah, what does that present Jesus as? The servant of God, yes. So Mark's picture is of Jesus as the servant of God. Now, if we've got Matthew taking the first half and Mark taking the second half of Isaiah, that doesn't leave much for Luke, but I don't think Luke's taking his from Isaiah at all. 
Um, I want to show, before I show you the next chart, I want to take you to a, a passage in John, in Luke 3, I mean. And this is, I mean, all four Gospels talk about John the Baptist. But Luke has something that's different from the others. Look in chapter 3 and verse 20. Herod also added this to them all that he locked John up in prison. Now you might say, well, I remember that in Matthew and Mark. Yes, you do. But do you remember it as being mentioned before Jesus got baptized? <laughs> Which, of course, it didn't happen before Jesus was baptized. It happened after that. Um, because of course John couldn't baptize Jesus if he was locked up in prison and which and he never got out. So the question comes up, why would why would Luke change the order here? Obviously he's doing it on purpose. Um, deliberately talk about being put in prison before he talks about baptizing Jesus. It comes from, I think, this is just my my opinion, but you, you can see whether you agree. It comes from where I think Luke is following from the Old Testament. And I, I'm suggesting up here that Luke's view is that Jesus fulfills the life of David. Now, I'm not saying that none of these Gospels are contradicting each other. They're each taking a different aspect from the Old Testament and showing how that applies to Jesus. But Luke appears to be following 1st and 2nd Samuel for his pattern for the life of Jesus. And I'll show you in a minute where that fits in with John the Baptist. Um, first of all, in 1st in Samuel, you've got this lady called Hannah. Who was she? Yeah, she was the mother of Samuel. And the, the book of 1 Samuel opens where she's got a problem. What's her problem? She doesn't have Samuel. Yeah, she, can't ha she hasn't had any children. She, she's gone for a number of years, can't have any children. So what does she do about it? She prays. Where does she pray? In the temple. Yeah, at the temple. She went to the temple and prayed. Now, think about how that relates to the story in Luke. And Luke's the only one that tells this. Um, we have a couple that's quite old, Zacharias and Elizabeth, instead of the, the mother going to the temple to pray, the future mother that is, it's the future father who is in the temple at the time. Um, and he's burning incense. And in verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So you have, you have these direct parallels. And... He gets this revelation while he's in the temple that he's that they're going to have a child. Let's look further here. Um, in the next chapter, chapter two, when Mary is visiting Elizabeth, I'm sorry, I told you wrong. It's still in chapter one. It's a huge chapter. <laughs> chapter one, starting in verse forty-six, Mary prays a prayer which is really based on Hannah's prayer after she has Samuel. Um, you read through that and you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and you'll see a lot of parallels. Um, so we're, we're 
Here we've got two different things, both pointing us back to these early chapters of 1 Samuel. Then, when we compare Samuel with John the Baptist, we see that they both had the job of judging the wicked and bringing the people to repentance. In Samuel's case, who were the first wicked people he was given to judge? Eli's sons. Eli's sons, exactly. And then, of course, the whole, the whole people had been going after idols and he had to bring them back. They were in bondage to what foreign nation? Philistines, yes. And, and so Samuel's job was to teach them to repent so they could get free of, of, this, of their enemies. John, on the other hand, he was judging... Um, he really was judging the, the, the priests and the leaders of the people. Um, we saw when, when, they, sent, when the, they sent some people, some priests and some leaders, this is back in, the, in Matthew, I think it was, that, to find out who he, you know, where is he from? He told them he, you know, he told them he, he quoted from Isaiah. And when some of them wanted to get baptized, he told them they were they need to be bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In Luke's story, he calls the people a generation of vipers, <laughs> pretty strong. And and he tells them what they need to do to repent. <clears throat> Both of these guys, both Samuel and John, got into trouble by rebuking a king for his sins. In, in Samuel's case, who was the king? Saul. That's right. And, and Samuel had to be very careful after that how he behaved. Saul was very suspicious of him. You remember when God told him to go anoint David, what was Samuel's concern? Saul. Yeah, if Saul hears about it... <laughs> he's liable to take Samuel's life. In John's case, which was the king that John rebuked? That was Herod, yes. Which That was the verse we just read when he got put in, in prison. And Samuel was the forerunner to David. And the high point of his story was when he anointed David the king. I don't think we would have had a book of a book of Samuel, original first and second Samuel were all one book. I don't think we would have had a book of Samuel if it hadn't been for David. The whole point of Samuel's life was to, to was to bring people to David and bring and anoint David to be king. And once Samuel anointed David as king, Samuel just fades from the scene. And he's mentioned a time or two after that, but he doesn't do anything of, of any real significance. That was his that was his climax. For John, the high point for him was when he baptized Jesus. And at that, and while Samuel anointed David king, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed right after John baptized him. Now, can someone tell me now why Luke wanted to reorder it and put? Herod locking him up in prison before the baptism. Don't? Right. You, you, to, to match the order in the book of Samuel, he, he puts the rebuke of the king prior to the baptism of Jesus. 
In fact, the rebuke may have been prior to the baptism of Jesus, but the putting in prison was after that. Um, and to get the high point at the end of the story of John, he's got to get he's got to mention the other details before that. So he's 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 very consciously following the outline in First Samuel here. Um, then, as soon as David got anointed, what was his big story? Killing Goliath. Goliath was the one who had been taunting Israel. As soon as Jesus got baptized, he takes on a bigger giant than Goliath. He single-handedly faces Satan and defeats him in the wilderness. Then, with David, not too long after he... Well, if you follow the story of David, after he killed Goliath, what was the people's attitude toward him? Yeah. Oh, they loved him. Sing song, this is just great, wonderful. Oh, we love this guy. Except for one person. Who was that? Yeah, Saul wasn't so happy about this. And he tried to kill David. In fact, that, that then began David's um, period of, of, I assume, several years where he was having to run away from Saul. He, he got a band of men. At first there were 400. Later on it was up to 600. That followed him. He was the leader of them. And they were just kind of wandering from one place to another. They did not really have a home. All because the king wanted to kill him. Now, in Jesus' case, this is another thing where where Luke follows a different order from the other writers. In um, in in chapter four, the very first story that Luke has after the the temptations in the wilderness, the very first story he has is he went back to Nazareth. And I th- the reason I think that he put that story first is because that introduces us very clearly to people trying to kill Jesus. It's not going to be the last by any means. But amid all this acclaimed popularity that Jesus has, and, and he already mentioned his popularity prior to that, um, we've got these people trying to kill Jesus. And that's a theme that's going to continue through the rest of the book as well. <clears throat> Then both David and Jesus wandered the countryside with their bands of followers. Still, again, following the same outline that we find in in Samuel. And then finally, David's story reaches its climax when he conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital. Bonus question. How old was, was David when he was appointed king? Yeah, he was 30 years old. How old was Jesus when he started preaching? He was about 30. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Jesus' story reaches its initial climax when he entered Jerusalem amid the acclaim of the people. Now, of course, the full climax was something that David had no parallel for when Jesus was raised from the dead. But that was, at that point, he had followed the story in Samuel from the very beginning to the, very, to the climax when David became king. And, it, and I don't think he follows it beyond that 
and it has some uh, unfortunate twists after that anyway but um, and of course he didn't follow I mean there's I mean there were sins that David committed that obviously Jesus didn't follow and, and I'm not I'm, I don't want you to think that every single chapter you get to in Luke you can turn to first Samuel find a parallel it's not that but Luke is trying to show that Jesus was the true son of David and that he really fulfilled the story that David, in fact, was the foreshadowing of Jesus. All right, any questions or more comments on that one before I go? All right, so we're ready to, then to start with chapter 1. We've got John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth foretold. Let me see that. So Luke chapter 1. Now I want to read the first four verses. These are, are unique. Um, no, no other gospel writer has anything like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Let me mention one thing that you, you won't catch reading this. and, and this, the, the, Those who can read Greek well say that these four verses are the most classical Greek in the entire New Testament. Now, now, classical Greek was a language which was used about 500 years before this. They weren't speaking classical Greek at this time. Um, classical Greek for those people would have been like uh, Shakespearean English for us. Shakespeare was, a, was you know, roughly 500 years ago. Um, and you can imagine somebody in, you know, writing some particularly formal document writing it in, in something like King James English or, or Shakespeare English. Um, and in Luke's day, the first century AD, um, your, your real scholarly writers still thought that classical Greek was the way to go. Koine Greek was the language of the ordinary people on the, and the New Testament was written in that language, Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the language that um, you know, the merchants would, would use to, to talk to each other, it was a language that you know the Greek people would talk in the street. Um, now this this is the, this is the classical introduction. He's not going to stay in classical Greek the re for the rest of it. Luke's going to use Koine Greek just like everyone else. But Luke is certainly a very educated man. He's, a, he's an educated Greek, in fact. Does anyone know anything else about Luke from the New Testament? Yeah, he was a physician, which. A doctor would obviously be an educated person, and and he he um, he shows he's educated. Had he ever seen Jesus? No, yeah, I mean you read these four verses; it's very clear he's not claiming to be an eyewitness himself. He says these things were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses. Luke is no, he never saw Jesus. Um, we, we know Matthew did. Of course, he was one of the twelve apostles. We're pretty sure that Mark did. 
it appears that he even put himself into the story there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the only other Gospel writer is John. He was one of the inner circle of Jesus' apostles. So Luke is the, is the outsider here. Not only is he an outsider in the sense that he never saw Jesus, but he's an outsider in another sense. What's that? That's right. He's the only non-Jewish writer um, of the New Testament, in fact. Um, he, was, he was Greek. And so naturally we would assume that his gospel is, is aimed toward Greeks. And I think that's, that's valid. Um, he doesn't have Matthew's view of trying to reach the Jews with, with the story of the king of the Jews. Um, with, with Luke, he's targeting the Greek audience, which would be the world. In fact, you might have noticed when we got to the genealogy of Jesus, um, where is the genealogy? <laughs> oh, I had that earlier. In, um, yeah, thank you. Into chapter 3. Yeah, he, first of all, he does it backwards from Matthew. Matthew starts with Abraham and goes chronological order forward. Mark doesn't have it, neither does John. But he starts backwards. He starts with um, Jesus. He says, "Being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli." And most people assume, and I think they're right, that Eli was actually Mary's father. He was Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph, but in fact, he was by physical descent. He was descended from Eli through Mary. And from this point, for for, most, for many generations, the names do not match Matthew's at all. And the reason is that Matthew is giving us Joseph's genealogy, the father. So he, he was just, Jesus was descended from Jesus on both Joseph's side and Mary's side. But Luke, um, it's very obvious in these early chapters that Luke is following Mary's story. Um, whereas in Matthew, you get Joseph's story. The angel appears to Joseph, for example, tells him, uh, about Mary, the angel appears and tells him to go to Egypt. Those things—they're all it's Joseph's side, but um, none of those things are in Luke. It's just the story, the things were, that Mary was in that are, are in Luke. But as he c- continues going backwards, who does he end with in in chapter three? With humans, Adam. <laughs> yeah, Adam, and Adam is in the Son of God. <laughs> well, that's Matthew starts with Abraham. Who would care about Abraham? Right, the Jews. But if you go all the way back to Adam, that gets all of us. And that obviously is is Luke's um, uh, perspective on this. So Luke tells us in these first four verses, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. We don't know who he is, but um, by the fact that he calls him excellent Theophilus, that implies that he's a high government official. Um, and he tells him that he very carefully researched this thing and he he got it from... Um, he said these things were handed down to us from, from those who were eyewitnesses. And then he says he investigated it carefully to write it out in consecutive order. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't adjust things at times to fit his, his purposes, but he, he did get it all in order so that Theophilus could know the exact truth about the things he had been taught. Luke would have been able to do that research when Paul was in prison in Caesarea toward the end of the book of Acts. 
He was in prison for at least two years. And Luke, we know Luke was with him. Uh, so Luke would have, could have easily gone around interviewing all these people. I mean, this would, this would have been in the late 50s. The events happened around A.D. 30. So we're only talking 25 years later or something. There would be plenty of people he could interview. Possibly even Mary herself would have still been alive at the time since she was very young when Jesus was born. Um, so he, he would have had ample access for this. Now, we understand the Holy Spirit is guiding all the writers in the New Testament. But that doesn't free them from doing the work themselves. Luke had to do the research just like anyone would have to to write a story about something that he wasn't there when it happened. So he starts the story then in, in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. <clears throat> Interesting thing, from, from verse 5 on to... How far? Um, at least to the end of chapter 1, and perhaps a little bit farther than that. Scholars, again, who, who know the languages very well, say that this section is the most Semitic section in the New Testament. Now, Semitic means it's based upon... Uh, one of the Oriental languages, Arabic, uh, Aramaic, or Hebrew. All those three languages are very closely related. And so Luke has picked up a story. I don't know whether Luke knew Aramaic or not. Aramaic was a language Jesus spoke. His mother spoke. Others like that spoke. But somehow he's picked up a story and he's conveyed, even though he's written in Greek, he's conveyed the word order and the word usage that would have been found when the people told this story in Aramaic. And one of the authors I I was reading suggested that this showed Luke's very careful um, attention to detail and his faithfulness to his sources. Luke's the one that's going to have to arrange the whole thing into a book. But he's trying to be very faithful to the language of the people that told it to him. And so we have um, what the scholars tell us is is a a very Semitic um, flavored section of of this book. Uh, Alright, so we've already looked at verse 7. They they were barren, they had no children. And then um, starting in verse 8, Zacharias had the chance to actually burn incense in the temple. I've read that this was a very rare honor. That they, they would just cast lots as to whose turn it was. And it's, it's quite possible this was the only time in his whole life he ever had this chance to burn incense in the temple. Because there were a lot, there were a lot more priests than, than there were, I guess, days in, in the year when they would, would do this work. And so there he is burning the incense and suddenly behind it, beside him is standing what? An angel. An angel, yeah. And uh, in verse 12, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. <laughs> it's something that certainly matches Old Testament descriptions. And so, what's the name of this angel? This Gabriel. Gabriel, yes. He tells him that a little bit later. And he tells him that he's, he and his wife are going to have a child in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at His birth. And I've noticed this, the, the theme of joy is a, a, a very common one in the book of Luke. 
Uh, what, what word did we find very common in Mark? Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> that was, that's Mark's word. Um, and I don't know whether joy would be Luke's word, but I did, do find that joy is found quite a lot uh, in, in the book. And so he's, to, you know, Zacharias and Elizabeth, you're going to have joy, and which I'm sure they, they did. Um, he also, there are certain rules about him in verse 15. Without saying the word, Gabriel's basically telling him that John's going to be what? A, a Nazarite, yes. He's drink no wine or liquor and all that. that that's, those are rules for Nazarites. Who in the Old Testament was also a Nazarite? Samson was, yes. There's another one. Huh? No? Samuel. <laughs> Samuel. <laughs> I should have put that on the chart there. <laughs> yeah. Both Samuel and John the Baptist were both Nazarites. Yeah. Okay, so um, then Zacharias makes a big mistake in verse 18. How will I know this for certain? <laughs> you just had an angel standing here telling you. You're asking how you're going to know for certain? The angel gives him a sign. I don't know how well he liked this sign. What was the sign? <laughs> Not be able to speak. <laughs> oh boy, which was a sign not just for him, but for the the people. Because when he came out of the temple, they saw he couldn't speak anymore. So everyone knows he's seen a vision. It's, it's very clear. They're wondering what is gonna what's gonna happen. Meanwhile, six months later, the same angel Gabriel goes to what city? Nazareth. Yes to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, and of course her name was Mary. And Gabriel comes in and says, verse 28, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And notice, in the next verse, it doesn't say she was fr frightened. It says, but she was very perplexed at this statement. It kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. <laughs> and that's a, again a theme that we're going to see several times in these early chapters. Mary ponders. Things happen and she, she doesn't understand it, but she thinks about it. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, don't, I wish I knew whether she was still alive and whether Luke got to interview her because I can just imagine her telling Luke you know, 25 years later. Well, I, from this time, it would have been over 50 years later, but telling him, I thought a lot about that. <laughs> that really pulls <laughs> Well, she doesn't have the lack of faith that Zacharias had. She says in verse 38, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may, be, may it be done to me according to your word. And then she goes to visit Elizabeth. Um, and then that's when she has this great speech, which you may see a heading in your Bible where it says it's the Magnificat. That comes from the Latin, which she says, My soul exalts the Lord. From the Latin, the word Magnificat is the word exalt. And then when the baby's finally born, they gotta have a name and what's the name gonna be? Everybody's Zacharias. Yeah, Zacharias, you know, his only son. <laughs> no, not wrong. <laughs> Alright. What does the name John mean? Did anyone look that up? Um, Jehovah is gracious. Interesting name for this man, isn't it? Jehovah is gracious. And so as soon as Zacharias writes out his name is John, then he can speak. 
And he has a prophecy as well, uh, starting in verse 67. And this again is a prophecy that really sounds a lot like things in in 1 Samuel. Um, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. And He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David His servant. A very Old Testament concept, a horn. What, what, is, what do people mean in the Old Testament when they talk about the Lord is our horn? Um, strength, yes. They're not thinking of you know blowing a horn. They're thinking of when the horn's still on this wild animal and it's going around goring things. That, that's what a horn is. For, for, a, for people in the Old Testament, the horn is the animal's strongest weapon. And so when they say, God is my horn, what they mean is, He's my strength. So a horn of salvation means we need to be saved and we need someone strong to save us. And that is the Lord. In the house of David is serpent, He says. Um, Alright, now we'll move on. Chapter 2, we have the birth and childhood of Jesus. So, three months, of course, after John was born, Jesus was born. Not three months, six months. Yeah, because it was six months after. Yeah, alright, six months later, Jesus is born. And he was born in Bethlehem, but why wasn't he born in Nazareth? Yeah, under? Yeah, the emperor had decreed that there'll be a, a census, and everyone had to go to their city, their ancestors, ancestry city, which would be a real challenge, I expect, for a lot of us, because I, I don't know how I, I couldn't tell you what my ancestry city is, <laughs> where are my ancestors from. Um, one of my ancestors ran away from home, and they, we can't even trace the genealogy back before that time because he never told anyone what his background was. But, of course, Joseph and Mary knew full well what, what their ancestry was. They were descended from David. The city of David was Bethlehem, so they went there, and it's time for the baby to be born. The end was all full in verse 7, which, when you think end, don't think of like a motel here. It, it, it was it was a campsite where the tra- it was you know probably a publicly available site where travelers were allowed to to make camp, but it was all full and so she had to to um, go where they put the animals, um, which is why she laid him in a feeding trough because she was with all these animals when baby was born. Of course, the picture we get is of you know this child being born into poverty, not royalty, which is of course accurate. Then the scene switches in verse 8 to people of what? Uh, occupation. Shepherds. Yes, yeah, shepherds. Now if you think shepherds, what do you think back in the Old Testament? Well, David. Yeah, David. I'm sure that's what, what, what the point is here. So the announcement of the birth of this one to shepherds, they're announcing the birth of the son of David. David was the shepherd of Israel. And so now there's a new one, and Jesus came to be a shepherd to his people. And so the shepherds then came and you know to see the child, and, and in verse 19, but Mary treasured all these things, 
pondering them in her heart. <laughs> She's still trying to figure this all out. Of course, it'll take a long time. Um, then they go up to Jerusalem and this and, and Simeon, this old man, sees him and he offers some more prophecies about them, which in verse 33, his, mo- his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Um, what, what is this child going to be? I'm sure is what they're thinking. Um, and then he gives a prophecy, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end of thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When was that fulfilled? When did a sword pierce Mary's soul? Yeah, when she was watching Jesus on the cross. That, that's when the sword pierced her soul. So then in verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. What did Luke leave out? Yeah, the, the trip to Egypt. Matthew covers that. And, that, and that's just... I mean, Luke had, every one of these authors is being selective. Every author that's ever lived is being selective. That's what you have to be. You can't tell everything. And and that that was not that was not to the point that Luke wanted to make. It had nothing to do with the story in Samuel, so it didn't it just didn't fit. Um, so the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then we have the story, which again only in Luke, about when he was twelve years old, um, he got accidentally left behind, and. Three days later, his parents find him finally, and they say in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. So, he understood quite a bit more than they did about who he was even at the age of 12. And so finally, in verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And now we switch back to John because we move forward until he's about probably around 30 years old. And Luke gives us the most accurate dating of this event that anyone does. In verse 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. He dates it by as many different people as he possibly can. Now the 15th year of Tiberius, we know... Uh, Tiberius Caesar became emperor in in August of AD 14 when Augustus Caesar died. So the 15th year would be late 28 or the first half of 29 uh, AD. Um, Pontius Pilate was governor beginning, I believe, in 26 AD and extending for about 10 years, so that works. Herod, all these others match, although we don't even have historical references on all these guys. We have a strange mention of high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. Two high priests? That's an indication of the problem there. 
And and there certainly was where the Romans kept messing around with things. And neither one of the both of those guys participated in the trial of Jesus. Neither one of them was was any good. They were they were wicked people. So John comes and he preaches to the people to repent. Um, so in verse seven, he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring fruits in keeping with repentance. <laughs> and so when they asked what to do, he tells them in verse 10, What shall we do? He would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And then we already covered verses 19 and 20 about how he got arrested. And then of course in verse 21 and 22, he baptized Jesus. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Now, I don't, I'm not certain whether the other authors mention in verse 21 that Jesus was praying after the baptism. Um, but I will comment that it appears to me that Luke mentions the prayers, the praying of Jesus more than any other author. We'll, we'll see a few of those uh, later on. Um, so then we have the genealogy, which we've already covered that as well. Um, and the 30 years of age here in verse 23, we covered that. So let's go on to chapter 4. The temptations of Jesus. Again, corresponding with the battle against Goliath single-handedly. 40 days. You might recall that in the story of Goliath, Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days. There's a number of parallels here that when you start thinking about it, it's really quite surprising. For 40 days, he's tempted by the devil, and then finally he handles these three great temptations. And at the end, verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He had been defeated, but unlike Goliath, he wasn't dead yet. That's going to come at the end of Jesus' life when he deals the death blow to him. So in verse 14, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread. Everybody's praising him. And in verse 16, he came to Nazareth. So on the map here, Luke has not told us this, but Jesus has already made his headquarters in Capernaum. But now he comes to Nazareth where he grew up. And he's announcing... He is fulfilling the book of Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And he says in verse 19, he finishes up to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. If you look back in Isaiah, the second half of the verse that is not quoted here is, and the judgment of the Lord. <laughs> but Jesus at this point is just presenting the favorable year of the Lord, which I think is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. But I don't have time to go into that. But he says in verse 21, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're all speaking well of him. That's just wonderful. But then they don't like what he says because he tells them that he's not going to do any miracles for them. And in verse 28, they are filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up. This is just astonishing, but I think this is why Luke puts the story first here. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he, passing through their midst, went away, went his way. Um, 
this is supposedly the cliff that they were trying to throw him over. The, the local people tell, uh, of Nazareth today say that this is it. They would have pushed him down here. It's not, it's not a sheer drop, but I don't know how you, anyone would survive if they got tossed over that cliff. Um, the, what I've read is that in Jesus' day, the city of Nazareth was a very small village of about 200 people. Today, it's, there's thousands there today. It's, it's a major Palestinian city today. Um, and I, I wanted to get a picture of Nazareth, but all the pictures of Nazareth just has high-rise apartments. I mean, it, it doesn't look like a, a little village of 200 people in it anymore. But, but this one, at least, this probably looks a lot like it did in Jesus' day. Um, so then we go to Capernaum in verse 31. And this Sabbath story is found at the beginning of Matthew. It's also found at the beginning of Mark. Um, in the, in the, the um, synagogue, he's got a, a demon that starts um, telling people who Jesus is. And Jesus says, be quiet and come out of Him. And which just amazes people in verse 36. What is this message for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits that come out. Then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then once the sun goes down, it's no longer the Sabbath, the whole town comes to him to get healed and he heals all these people and casts out demons and all that. Then in verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. That again is found in the other Gospels. The crowds were searching for him, came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But Jesus, but he said to them, "I must preach the, God, the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose." So then, um, the next story in chapter is in chapter five, when he gets his first disciples. This is the story of when he preached from a boat. Whose boat did he preach from? Simon, Simon Peter's. Yes. And uh, at the end of it, he paid Peter in fish. <laughs> more, more fish than, she, than Peter had ever seen in one letting down of his nets. And he, he was so shocked. What did he say to Jesus? Get away from me, I'm unclean. Yeah. yeah, you need to go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Jesus, Jesus in answer says, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching... What? Men. Men, yeah. He'll be a fisherman, but not a fisherman of fish anymore. And, the, and with that, he had four um, because Peter and his brother had partners of uh, James and John. So he's, he's called four at this point. Then there's a very poignant story where this man with leprosy, which is a very tragic situation, he comes up to him and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You notice he doesn't say, Lord, do you think you are able to make me clean? He knows Jesus can do it. What's the question in his mind? Is he willing? Well, Jesus, that's not a question. <laughs> I am willing, he says. Be cleansed. And he, he touched him, and the leprosy left. And then later in the chapter, we have another story, starting in verse 17. Uh, he's in a house. I assume it's Peter's house. Um, it's because it's in Capernaum. And um, these guys can't get to him. And of course, they, they walk up the outside stairs and lower him down after digging a hole in the roof. 
wonder what I've always wondered what Peter thought of that afterwards. <laughs> and um, Jesus, instead of saying "Get up and walk," what's he say? Your sins, are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, which of course offends these Pharisees that are watching. But he proves that he knows what he's talking about because he says, "Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home." And the man does. Um, so, verse 20 says, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And then the last story in this chapter is the call of Levi. Also called what? Matthew, that's right. Levi's job was? Tax collector. And so after he gets called, he gets a big feast and naturally he's going to invite the tax collectors to his feast. Which brings up criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Their view is, you must be one of them if you're going to eat with them. Jesus' statement, though, is, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's with sick people because he's a doctor, not because he's sick. (laughs) Um, And then they have one more criticism. He said, you know, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. You guys aren't very spiritual if you're not fasting. What's Jesus' answer to that? His disciples are with the bridegroom. Yeah, they're with the bridegroom. It's a time of celebration. You don't fast when you're getting ready for a marriage. But He said the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they'll fast in those days. And He tells a parable to show how things have changed from what they were in former times. We'll stop there. Anyone have some last questions? Well, I appreciate everyone's help this morning.